0: This week's episode of The Read Out Loud will be different. As everyone listening to this podcast certainly knows, uh, George Floyd, a black man, was killed on camera by a white Minneapolis police officer who has since been charged with murder. In the ensuing days, there have been protests around the world demanding that authorities address the systemic racism that informs policing, housing, education and healthcare.
1: Each week on this podcast, we talk about the latest news in biotech, health tech, and medicine. That might make it seem like an unlikely venue to address Floyd's killing and the deep inequalities it underlines. But in talking about how we should construct this week's episode, we agreed that the issues of racism and inequality are deeply important to the stuff we usually cover in the stories we write every week and in this podcast.
2: So I'm Damien Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins.
2: The first thing we're going to discuss this week is how the drug industry has responded to Floyd's killing and the ensuing protests and what that response means.
0: Then we're going to be joined by Tony Coles, a longtime biotech executive who is a founding member of the Black Economic Alliance. That's a group of business leaders who raise money for candidates and causes. Tony is going to weigh in on this current moment and what comes next.
1: It's Thursday, June 4th, and we'll be back after a word from our sponsor.
0: Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has led the translation of the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNA interference into an innovative new class of medicines. RNAi therapeutics treat disease differently than other types of medicines by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Our pioneering work has delivered the world's first and only approved RNAi therapeutics, and we're just getting started. Learn more about how our science is changing the way medicine treats disease at alnylam.com slash stat. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot forward slash stat. When a white cop kills a black man or a black woman, which has happened all too frequently in recent years, outrage and protests follow.
3: I am. I am. Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin. We want justice. We want police officers to be held accountable for killing us. And
1: corporations sometimes respond with public statements of their own, but the words used are usually pretty banal. There's a commitment to equality, a renewed pledge to promote diversity and so on. But what's not contained in these corporate statements is anything addressing the underlying issues of violence and systemic racism.
2: And that's so far been true for the drug industry, where we on this podcast focus most of our attention. So obviously, as anyone who's paid attention to the fight for equality in America can tell you, there is a huge difference between words in a press release and actual action. But the shift in diction in some of these statements we saw this week seems worth pointing out.
1: In a letter to employees that was also issued publicly, Daniel O'Day, the CEO of Gilead Sciences, said the following, quote, the actions leading to the death of George Floyd and the protests across multiple cities have made this a time of deep pain and sadness. All of this reminds us that racism and the injustices and discrimination that come with it are all too real in our society today." End quote.
0: Yeah, and what struck me about that statement was that it, you know, wasn't generic. It wasn't just a generic racism is bad statement. You know, O'Day mentions George Floyd specifically. He's surely not the only corporate leader to do this, but invoking Floyd's name is more personal, and it moves closer to a form of protest, I think. That is not where you see corporate America normally go.
2: Another thing that struck me was both Vosner Simon, the CEO of Novartis, and Alex Gorsky, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson, which is the world's largest healthcare company, they both issued statements in which they said, unequivocally and plainly, that, quote, Black Lives Matter. And I think you know, again, these, these are words in a press release, and I don't want to misconstrue what's going on here. But if you recall back in 2013, 2014, uh, the deaths of Trayvon Martin and uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, part of the reason the Black Lives Matter movement began was to get people in power to just simply say those words to acknowledge what they mean. And so, you know, if you look back at, at corporate statements, however banal from back then, you didn't
0: see that. So the most Striking words about George Floyd from a drug industry leader came from Merck CEO Ken Frazier in an interview on CNBC. And we're going to talk about those in a moment. But first, there was one company whose response was particularly introspective. Uh, Rebecca, what happened at 23andMe?
1: Yeah, so Anne Wojcicki, the uh, genetics testing company CEO, authored a statement that was posted to the company's website. And probably the most striking lines were as follows, quote, I'm ashamed to say I do not have a single Black employee who is at director level or above. Our product is Eurocentric, but must expand to be inclusive and equitable. We absolutely have the potential to be better. Despite our efforts, I have to honestly say that we are also part of the problem. End quote. So you don't see that kind of candid language every day from a company. And it raises some questions, I think, about what 23andMe's responsibility is in addressing what's a really well-documented problem in genetics research. And that's the fact that genetic prediction simply works better for white people of European ancestry because their DNA is disproportionately represented in the data.
2: So what might 23andMe's responsibility be when it comes to this issue?
1: Yeah, it's a big question. And it really doesn't have easy answers. You know, many researchers have been calling for a long time for greater representation of people of color in genetics research. And 23andMe has to its credit taken some steps to that end such as by offering free spit kits to African Americans and other underrepresented populations through several programs. But, you know, should the company go farther such as by paying people of color for their data? I'd be really curious to hear more from uh, independent geneticists on these questions.
0: So let's close this segment with Merck CEO Ken Frazier, who, again, as we said, was interviewed by CNBC host Andrew Ross Sorkin earlier this week. Let's take a listen to some of Frazier's comments.
3: What the African-American community sees in that videotape is that this African-American man, who could be me or any other African-American man, is being treated as less than human. And I think what really caused the spark that set all this off is what is the reaction of the officials to what I just said?
2: So Ken Frazier is probably familiar to most people listening to this podcast, but it's worth noting that Ken Frazier is a black man. He is the only black CEO of a big pharma company and is one of very few black CEOs in big business in America in general. And this isn't the first time that Ken Frazier has been put in this position. You may recall back in 2017, after the Unite the Right uh, event in Charlottesville turned violent at the hands of white nationalists, President Trump declined to castigate those white nationalists. And so Ken Frazier resigned from the president's business advisory council, which set in motion a series of events and led to, I think, you know, similarly direct and striking uh, words from, from Ken Frazier at that time.
1: And that's useful context, I think, to understand an additional point that Frazier made during the CNBC interview. He was asked if businesses making statements about the killing of George Floyd were enough. And here's what he said. These things
3: happen over and over again. And when there's unrest, people put out statements. They put out platitudes. They say, this is terrible. We decry racism. Uh, We believe that we ought to build a just society. I think business has to go beyond what is required here, it has to go beyond just statements. I think, for
0: example. So, Frazier makes an important point here that we need to go beyond just statements. But what might that path forward look like? Joining us to discuss that and more is Tony Coles. Today, Tony is chairman and CEO of Cerevelle Therapeutics. He's also founder and chairman of Humanity Therapeutics. Previously, Tony was CEO of Onyx Pharmaceuticals until it's purchased by Amgen. He was also the CEO of NPS Pharmaceuticals and has served in executive positions at Vertex, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck.
1: Tony is also a founding member and co-chair of the Black Economic Alliance. That's a coalition of business leaders that are committed to economic progress and prosperity in the Black community. Tony,
2: thank
0: you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So Tony, maybe to begin, I guess I'll just simply ask, you know, how are you?
3: I'm well now. The weekend and the last several days with the, the unrest we've all witnessed, the protests, and and most importantly, the loss of life of, of an individual have all taken their toll on me. I don't think you're human if you have not been moved by any of these events over the, the last several days. And they've certainly deeply impacted me. Not just because it was the loss of another human life, but because he was a black man and I'm a black man. And that hits very close to home.
1: Tony, can you share with us some of the conversations you're having with coworkers, colleagues, friends, family right now?
3: Yeah, they've been interesting. And they certainly progressed over the last few days as I've clarified some of my thinking and and, and as I've become more clear on, on what the real issues are. You know, they start in a way with the construction of the source of this problem. And this problem dates back to 1619, when the first Africans were brought to this country uh, as enslaved people. And automatically, those who enslaved them had to, in a way, dehumanize them and set up a different way of thinking about another human being that would allow them to not only enslave them, but to treat them as miserably as history records. And then over the years, we've examined ways in which we've tried to erase that stain in a way. But what we've not quite been able to erase is the indelible imprint and the wound that it has inflicted upon society and the notion that despite even human perceptions or beliefs there's been systemic and systematic government segregation think about the national housing act of 1934 which sponsored federally backed mortgages for americans and for the length of that program the 30 years of that program ran of the mortgages that were provided were to white Americans. Black Americans were excluded. And the reason that's important is that this was the original conception of redlining, but home ownership was also the fastest pathway to wealth creation in this country and the entree into the middle class. Think for a moment about Social Security when that act was first passed as part of the New Deal Black professions, jobs where blacks were disproportionately represented, were excluded from Social Security uh, benefit contributions and then ultimately payouts. Another really important means of sustaining middle class status. And then union membership, uh, not legislated, but unions often barred blacks from participating. All of these things that we take for granted today as the easy paths into the middle class Blacks were excluded from, and and this was in many cases, either socially supported or federally legislated. I start there because we oftentimes wonder, where did this problem really start? And we've talked about 1619, the year the first slave people came to this country, but it was only propagated and it was expanded upon as a result of some of these things. And why is that important? Well, Black households today have a net worth on average of $17,000 compared to the average white household at $171,000. And the statistics go on, but the income gap and the education gap are all part of the, the systemic problem. And if you layer that onto the social justice issues, which we saw in full display in the killing of George Floyd, you begin to understand that we've all been living in a toxic stew. And so the conversations I've been having with my friends have really been along the lines of not just bringing clarity to the history we already know, because I wouldn't insult intelligence, and I understand that we all know that piece, but did we know any of the other things, the systemic things that actually created this structure and that propagated the dehumanization of individuals that carries on today and allows a police officer for the nearly nine minutes that he has his knee on George Floyd's neck for three of those minutes to transpire after he's become unresponsive and lost a pulse. And that's not a question of fairness or stereotyping, or it's just a question of humanity at the end of the day. So those are the conversations I'm having with my friends when they ask, what a shame and what can I do? And what I say very quickly, and it's not enough not to be racist, we have to be anti-racist. And that's a really important distinction because the passive act of not being a racist isn't enough.
2: So sort of on that topic, we were talking about how the business community has responded to the killing of George Floyd and specifically drug companies. And they seem to go, at least in their public communications, much further than they had gone in the past. Almost all of the statements we've seen mentioned George Floyd by name, and a few included the words Black Lives Matter. Does it seem like the business community has come to take this issue more seriously? And, and then beyond that, how valuable is a given statement from, you know, for example, a multinational company?
3: Look, I, I, I give kudos and props to every CEO who's issued a statement, because that's one of the first steps to being anti-racist. So it's a first step, uh, and, and it's an important step, but it clearly isn't enough. I think Ken Frazier said it well, when he said it's not enough. So let's recognize that it's a beginning point But let's also recognize that in this journey that we are all now on, and the the death of George Floyd has given us this moment and this opportunity, we all have to do so much more. As leaders, we've got a clear obligation to step into the vacuum of moral leadership that we have in this country today, because it is our birthright as leaders to fill that vacuum and to fill it productively with the things that we want to see happen in society because we cannot divorce the twin engines of social progress and economic opportunity. We just can't. And the events of this past weekend make that point very, very, very clearly. But beyond stepping into that vacuum, I think we have to ask ourselves a different set of questions. And those questions go along the lines of if I'm truly working to be actively anti-racist, what can I do? How do I think about the hiring in my business? How do I think about the challenge or the pushback when an executive says to me, well, I looked, but there were no candidates of color for this role. And I can tell you as the leader of one of the most diverse teams, executive teams in the industry, and that was true, that's true today, that was true at Onyx, and it's been true throughout my leadership career that we have to do better and we have to look harder. Because until we bring people with diverse points of view into every conversation, we will be deprived collectively as a society and as a business community from that rich contribution. And the world is just too brown today to miss out on that contribution.
0: And Tony, it, you know, when we think about the drug industry in particular, do you think that industry is doing enough now to create kind of the work career opportunities for for Black people and other people of color.
3: No, because I think if we were doing enough, we'd have a different representation in the corporate boardroom of life science companies. We'd have a different representation amongst the executive teams. So clearly, we're not doing enough, and that's just the simple representation. But look, I, I applaud the start. Of, of this conversation. And you know, our industry, which I love so much, is really at an important moment. The world is looking to us to solve the coronavirus problem that is affecting all of us. And we, have a, we really have a golden moment to step into that challenge. But what if we applied even half the effort that we have behind solving the COVID crisis to this topic of diversity and to social justice and economic opportunity and to changing the makeup of our employee populations or or executive suites and boardrooms. Boy, that's real leadership.
1: So zooming out from the business community's response, why do you think this moment feels different from kind of other previous moments where we've confronted uh, these issues? You know, the list of Black people killed by police officers is tragically and, and horrifyingly long. And yet, we didn't see this kind of response, for example, to the deaths of Tamir Rice or Sean Bell. What is it about George Floyd's killing in this moment that led so many people to action, do you think?
3: So I've been thinking a lot about that. And and it's true even for me, because when the protests were just garnering national headlines, I, I woke up Friday morning, read the headlines, and I started crying. And I started crying for a couple of reasons. One, because this had happened and. And an innocent person or a person who should certainly have had a a trial if he had done something uh, was killed and he was snuffed out. And I said earlier that he's black and I'm black and I can't help but make the connection that really could have been me or importantly, it could have been my sons, because I've been in those situations where people have made a judgment about me, not because I'm the CEO of a biotech company, but because I'm a black man in America. And it happens every day that I actually wake up with that as part of my psyche. There is never a vacation from that notion. And so when you wake up every day of your life as a black person and you wonder, will I have a random encounter, not of my own making with anyone, or will one of my sons, I'm the father of three adult sons, will, will one of my sons have a random encounter that's not of their own making that could result in their loss of life? My son was stopped on the highway in February, driving a new car we purchased, uh, a nice car, a Range Rover, and he was stopped because the police officer couldn't read the temporary tags on the car. Now, fortunately, my wife was in the car. The officer comes up to the car, and my wife says, I'm Mrs. Coles. This is our car. We're transporting this car from one home to another. And this is my son, Taylor. And the officer leans into the car and says, you have more than one home? Well, what do you do? So he takes Taylor's license. He goes back to his vehicle to run a check. And my son, Taylor, turns to my wife, furious. And he says, stop talking. You are going to get me killed. Now, I don't know how many listeners have ever had their adult son or adult child say, you're going to get me killed. But do you know what that does? as a father. And there is no escaping that. So this is different because it's relatable for every human being on this planet. And I talked about the the nearly three minutes that the officer had his knee on the neck of George Floyd after he lost a pulse. And while officer involved shootings happen all the time because the gun is the tool of the trade for police officers, this was different because this was one human being who snuffed out the life of another with his bare hands. This was pure, casual, callous
2: murder. So Tony, as we mentioned before, you know, part of your, your role is you push for public policy and political change through the work of the Black Economic Alliance. How have the events of the past week affected the work that's going on over there?
3: Donations are up, which is good. Uh, because it is an organization that relies on individual contributions. And we've had wonderful support from people who just want to do something and who want to advance the work of this organization, which is a policy organization and is responsible for working with officials in Washington on the the coronavirus stimulus packaging. It's a political organization because we concern ourselves with electing officials who will, will advance an economic opportunity for Black Americans. And so our work has never been busier, never been more important. And it's really brought into sharp relief the intersection of social justice, medical or health justice as a result of the coronavirus pandemic's disproportionate impact on the Black community, and then economic justice. So that trifecta of social justice, health justice, and economic justice it's this clarion call for organizations like the Black Economic Alliance and makes our work even more critical that we advance a smart, intelligent agenda for Black Americans and their economic advancement.
0: So Tony, thanks so much. Really, we really appreciate you joining us today.
3: Well, thank you guys. Thank you for hosting the conversation. Thank you for giving me the space to share Uh, from my heart, from my mind, from my soul. This is such an important conversation.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
2: Thank you to Heisen Tempinado, who produced this week's episode.
0: Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
1: And as always, we would love to hear from you. Please tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how your company is grappling with issues around racism and inequality. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
2: And as always, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.